Okay, let's go over to Romans chapter 11 today. Romans chapter 11. Working our way through uh, the book of Romans, one chapter at a time here. And this is a a somewhat lengthy chapter, and I am going to read it here in just a few moments. Just to let you know that uh, this chapter can easily... uh, as, as I start reading through it, it, it can, we can get lost somewhere in the words. We can start to get a little confused as to, what is he trying to say here? What, what's, what's the point of the chapter? Um, the question that uh, Paul is addressing in chapter 11 is this. Has God given up on his people? After all, they didn't believe him. So... Has he just written them off? Has he moved on to just dealing with Gentiles? And, and forget about those, those Jews. They, they never believed him, so he's just going to go on. And Paul says, well, that, that's not the way it is. Matter of fact, Paul says, I'm a Jew and he saved me. And that's some of the first words he says in the chapter. So God is obviously still at work with his people, but it's hard to understand it. And so the illustration you will see in this chapter is that of an olive tree. The olive tree has its, its wonderful root system and its, its uh, trunk and its branches, and the Jews represent that olive tree. And God is at work there in the uh, olive tree, but since the olive tree did not believe him, he started to lop off branches, started to cut it off and cast them off to the side. And, and the impression is that uh, God doesn't love them then. Because he's cutting them off and casting them off. Actually, uh, I think that the act itself of cutting them off probably pained him a great deal. Just yesterday I was cleaning some brush out, some trees out behind our house there. Some dead ones, just cutting them off there. And I should have had a pair of gloves with me. I didn't. I I found that out a little bit later and I'm paying for it today. These band-aids aren't even going to stay on, I'm sure. Uh, But... um, the, the blisters were huge, and, and they hurt just to do that. And I just can't imagine that our Lord is not touched by even those who disobey or disbelieve him. After all, he's got marks on his hands, too. And he had thorns in his brow. And he did that because of unbelief. And so, in this, the Lord says, I lop off the branches. But then I go and I pull from the wild olives the branches, and I graft them into this. And he speaks there of the Gentiles, basically who you and I are, as believers in Christ, were, were attached to that tree. And that, too, is a work of his sovereign care. He provides for us in the same way that he provided for his Jews. But then he, he doesn't want us to get a big head. In that, he says, I could lop you off, too. Matter of fact, he even goes on to say, and eventually I'm going to put those other branches back on. Now, that's a picture of what a God can do. And so that's what the chapter is as we go through it. He's explaining this to us. So if you can follow along with the uh, concept, at least it will make it easier to hear it. Uh, Revelation 11, very long chapter, 36 verses here. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says? 
in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is his divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there is also uh, come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And if it is by grace, then it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it, is, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are also. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity. But to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what was, by nature, a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has come up to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, this is my covenant with them, I will take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God and now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also who have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. 
For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, that it might be paid back to him again? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, what a powerful passage is before us. A powerful passage because it takes our focus and sets it on you alone. And that's what we desire to do at this time as we work our way through to understand these words and to see your hand at work. May it draw our hearts right to your very throne. May we see what you do and bring glory to your name, even as Paul finished this great chapter with a beautiful doxology. May that be the cry of our heart today as we see your hand at work. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we've been walking through this book, looking at the fundamentals of our faith, these terms I've been using with you are are terms related to our salvation. It explains it so beautifully in this book, what God has done. And uh, we missed a week last week, so I'll catch you up where we have been. For each chapter, we found a simple truth about what God is doing. And we found in chapter 1 that salvation is accomplished only by the power of God. We found in chapter 2 that salvation cannot be bargained for. We found in chapter 3 that the depth of our sins makes it impossible for us to earn our salvation. We found in chapter 4 that it must be faith. Faith alone. Faith first that justifies the ungodly. We found in chapter 5 that salvation is a gift from God. We found in chapter 6 that we're united with Christ. We should not continue to sin. We found in chapter 7, we have the newness of the Spirit. We don't have to continue to sin. In chapter 8, we live godly lives because God dwells in us. Chapter 9, chapter 10, and now into chapter 11, he uses Israel as an example to help us understand several simple points. When it comes to salvation, God is the initiator. Chapter number 9. Chapter 10, we are the responsible. Bonders. We must believe. Chapter 10. And then he goes here into chapter 11. And I love this chapter. This one is, is always my favorite theme, theme in scripture. God gets the glory. Understand that when, whenever we talk salvation, I know how much we like it. I know how much we benefit from it. That seems to be so wonderful to us that sometimes... We look at ourselves so much when we talk salvation. When we step back and look at it from the perspective of Scripture, it's all about God's glory. It's all about His glory. And that's what we're going to see in this chapter. I I think it's a, a fascinating chapter and an important one for us. You see, God is sovereign in choosing us. That's an amazing thing that He does. But we are also responsible that we respond to His salvation by faith. But when it comes down to the very end, God alone gets the glory. Now, of this chapter, I always pick one verse to center on, to say that kind of sums up the chapter, and today it's verse 36. The last verse 
of this great section and this great doxology. He says, And from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. There are two significant words right there. Just before that word, Amen, you see the word glory forever. Glory forever. Let's define those two, because those are helpful for us to understand what is being expressed in these things. The word glory, doxa, in the Greek, it's a great little word. It speaks of one's reputation. It speaks of credit. It speaks of honor. We use that word for God often. It has to do with praise and glory. We translate it glory. Uh, That is what he is due. But the other word that goes with it is forever. Aeon is a great little Greek word. And you double it times. And when you double it, you've got forever and ever. And if you try to figure out forever, it's kind of complicated. Because we work by alarm clocks. We work by calendars. We look we we operate in a in a chronological system of things. We're used to time. Imagine ages, and that's the definition of the term. Ages, a continued duration that covers. Now, we're not talking about everlasting so much as something that starts right now and never stops, but eternal. It has no start and it has no end. So we're talking about what we might conceive as that which existed before time, And then when time was created, and I believe time is created, by the way. God created everything. So you've got the creation of time, and you've got the the events of creation and all that took place there. And then you've got what we call ancient times. Anymore, it's anything before 2000 is ancient now. But you've got old times, past times, present time, future time, and then launch it beyond that, eternity. How much of that, and how much of that should God get the glory? He used that word, didn't he? Forever. He's covering all of that. At no time, anywhere along that whole spectrum, does God not get the glory. And that's a powerful conception to try to put together. But we're going to try to do that today. Because here's how we generally render glory to God. We limit it to the good times. When things are right. When things are going well. That's that's generally how our our world does that. I I said this before, but I, I spent so many years listening to the NASCAR races on Sunday afternoons. And uh when they interview the winning driver, his phrase usually says, well, God was with us today. And I always had to stop and say, but wasn't he with the second place driver? The third place driver? Was it only the winners that God sits next to them, apparently? That's what they were thinking when they said it. I don't know. But that's how we think. Something good is happening, so God must be in this. He gets the glory. We, We give him credit so quickly for when things go well. But what about things when they don't go so well? Or when difficulties arise? Do we 
tone down the glory a little bit? Do we, do we limit it as such? Do we say, well, I don't know if that one qualifies. I want to show you this psalm. This, this psalm has gotten my attention in this. Go back to Psalm 136. Psalm 136. Now, this would be a great uh, congregational song. Uh, we're not going to do that today. But I'll show you which part you would have if we did. You'd get the second half of every verse. Matter of fact, it'd only take you a moment to memorize it. Even though it's a very long song, you the phrase that you'd have to repeat for his loving kindness is everlasting. And it's in every single verse. If you scan through there, you can see that. The writer of this psalm is, is giving glory to the Lord and the congregation is responding with, for his, ever, his loving kindness is everlasting. It's a wonderful little psalm. Psalm 136. Now, what are the context? Why are they saying that he's, his loving kindness is everlasting? Why are they giving him this kind of praise? Well, in verse 1, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Now, that's a good reason, right? Verse 2, give thanks to the God of gods. That's a good reason. Verse 3, give thanks to the Lord of lords. That's a good reason. Verse 4, to him who alone does great wonders. There's a good reason. Verse 5, to him who made the heavens with skill. Verse 6, to him who spread out the earth above the waters. To 7, to him who made the great lights. To 8, the sun to rule by day. Verse 9, the moon and the stars to rule by night. Verse 10, stop and look. Happy verse, right? To him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn. Say, oh, minor key. What do you do with that all of a sudden? We've been praising him for all the great things, and all of a sudden, what? Oh, if you if that troubles you a little bit, read down to verse fifteen. He who overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. I don't think Pharaoh enjoyed that moment, or his army. Does God get the glory? Verse number 17, to him who smote the great kings. In verse 18, and slew mighty kings. And then he tells you who they are. Verse 19, one was Sihon, king of the Amorites. One in verse 20 was Og, king of Bashan. And then he took their land and gave it to us as an inheritance. A, a heritage in verse 21. When you go through these passages and you sing this little song along with them, it's not all the happy things, is it? Difficult things, hard things. Those on the outside looking in would say, okay, you might give your God glory for this, but what about that verse? What about that thing? And they all stop and hesitate because they say, well, does he get the glory in everything? Is that what we really mean? He gets the glory in everything? Talk about Job for a few minutes. You know Job's story, don't you? Chapter number one, chapter two. Oh, horrendous things happened to Job. I'm not going to go through that story, but by the end of the day, he had lost everything and everyone but his wife. He even lost his health, didn't he? And there he sat on a pile of ashes. His wife even came and said, why don't you just curse God and die? Do you remember how Job responded to all that? He turned about and gave praise to his God. 
he praised him. Regardless of what the Lord gives or what the Lord takes away, he would simply say, blessed be the name of the Lord. How can a person do that unless they understand God? Because when we don't understand him, we tend to only associate good things to him. When we do understand him, we also associate the fact that he is sovereign in everything. Everything. When Paul was writing this book to the the Romans, as he's writing these words, he's in Corinth. He has already written letters to the Corinthians. He's already expressed some of the things he's endured. Now, of course, he's an apostle and perhaps one of the chief ones that we would read of in Scripture, right? And being so special in God's plan and all, every day was just ideal for the Apostle Paul. The sun came up at the same time. Temperature stayed the same temperature all day long. He had three course meals throughout the day. Everything was smooth. Never got sick. Never was injured. Had a beautiful life. Quiet, peaceful, and lemonade with it. Am I right? Not even close. The Apostle Paul before he even wrote this chapter, said these things in Second Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I want to speak to you of my labors and my imprisonments and the fact that I've been beaten without number time after time, often in danger of death. I would picture that as he was right on the verge of it so many times. Five times, he says, I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Now, I stop and think that one through a little bit. I just don't want to read that casually. 39 lashes. Probably the majority of us in this room, if we received these 39 lashes one time, we would not have lived through it. Five times, Paul's back was split open by that whip. Can you imagine the scars? Five times he endured the 39 lashes. It says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I'd spent in the deep. He's out floating in the water. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, in dangers from my countrymen, in dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness. Where can this guy go? Everywhere he's been, he's been in danger. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst without food and cold and exposure. After he writes to the Romans, he will be arrested. He'll be taken to a prison in Caesarea, spend the next two years there. He will go on trial before Felix and Festus and King Agrippa. They'll laugh at him. Paul will appear to appeal to Caesar for judgment. And so they put him on a ship. And Paul and ships generally only equate to one thing. And there's another shipwreck. But all the way through that, you could read his story, especially in Acts chapter uh, 27, where there he is in the shipwreck and all the people are starting to panic and thinking, we've got to get off the ship, we're not going to live. He says, stop. God is sovereign, he's got this in control, don't leave the ship. They're all like, you're kidding. He says, trust him. He says, matter of fact, you haven't eaten for a few days. Let's have lunch. 
and he sits them down together. And I can only imagine how they're shaking from the fright and all the rest, and they sit down, and, and Paul offers up a prayer to thanks before God. Even as that wind is going, the waves are going, the rain is going, the ship is going down, he gives God praise. How can this man be like this? What was so unusual about him that, that he can go through all these things and, and just... I, I remember once a, a friend of mine mentioning this in a church uh, setting. I know we were in the church, but it wasn't during the service. We were just standing together. And he says, boy, I wish the Lord would give something like this to us just so we could trust him more. And we actually stepped back. We thought, hey, do it alone, buddy. We're not going down that road. That just seemed... He, was, he wanted to know to trust the Lord more, but I know we... If there is pain to avoid, would we want to avoid it? There's our human nature. This is what Paul wrote to the Philippians. Matter of fact, this is what he wrote, chapter 1, the book of Philippians, while he was in that prison, or he was later in the Roman prison, rather. Um, Philippians chapter 1, I've gone past it twice. Here it is in verse number 12 through 20. Listen to his words. Philippians 1, 12-20. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So that in my imprisonment, in the cause of Christ, it has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, and some are from good will. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers, the provisions of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ, even now, will always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He got it, didn't he? He knew. God is sovereign in all this stuff, and He gets the glory. He gets the glory. Now, how do you express that? How, how do you express it in, in reference to time? Go back to our verse in Romans 11, verse 36, where He says, And from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. I'll read to you just a little paragraph here from Matthew Henry's commentary. Now, this was written in 1706. And it's going to read like it's fresh right now. In Paul's letter and the events that have all brought us to this point in our study, he says, He resolves all into the sovereignty of God. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. That is, God is all in all. All things in heaven and earth, especially those things which relate to our salvation, the things which belong to our peace, are of Him by way of creation through him, by way of providential influence, that they may be to him in their final tendency and result. Of God as a spring and fountain of all, 
through Christ, God through man, as a conveyance to God as the ultimate end. These three include, in general, all God's causal relations to his creatures, of him as the first efficient cause, through him as the supreme directing cause, to him as the ultimate final cause, for the Lord had made all for himself. And if be of him, if all be of him and through him, there is all the reason in the world that all should be to him and for him. Now there's three little prepositional phrases in verse 36 here. From him, through him, and to him. Those are the three I'd like to emphasize this morning as focusing on the way we bring him glory. From him are all things. From him. There's that first efficient cause. Now, being efficient, it's not wasteful. What he has done has had purpose. It's well organized. What he has done is competent, as we would define such words. It has produced the desired effect. And God always creates that way. There are no accidents along the way. He initiates all that he has thought to bring about. He does it. It's proper to say that God is the source of all things. In, in any construction project, you have to, to have a blueprint. You have to have materials. You have to have tools. You have to have the effort for the project to be complete. When we look at the world around us, we, we see the finished result. We look and see the mountains are there, the trees, the, the, the sky, the sea, all these things. But for it to have reached that point, there had to have been a plan. For it to have reached that point, there had to have been the, the supply of all that was needed. There had to have been the making of each and every part. Consider the world, just the earth that we're living on here right now. Creation was God's plan. The Bible doesn't teach a random thing, an accident thing, a, a lucky chance that the world came into being. It does not teach such a thing. We read that God is the initiator of creation. He made the world out of nothing. Very first words of this book, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He didn't just happen upon an earth one day. Whoa, there's the earth. He didn't discover this planet. He made it. And over and over again in Scripture, he emphasizes that. For Samuel says, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. Psalm 89, verse 11, The heavens are yours, he says, and the earth also is yours, the world and all it contains, for you have founded them. Before the mountains were born, he says in chapter 90 of Psalms, or it gave birth to the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now what's neat is, we focus on that and we see His power, don't we? The power of God to create. But it's also His wisdom that's part of this. I like the way Jeremiah said this in chapter 10, verse 12. He says, It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and His understanding, He stretched out the heavens. You see, beyond just magnificent power, the Bible teaches it was by his wisdom. It was by his understanding. 
He planned it. He designed it as it is. The shape, the size of the trees. He planned that. He designed it. The mountains, the oceans, the rivers were planned and measured and set as they ought to be. The intricate design of a rose is different from that of a carnation. He planned those as they are. The channels that run through the leaves of an oak tree. The sap that springs up in the, the spring, the acorns that fall and produce a tree of its own kind, just like what it came from. You could spend the whole morning on this, I know. But when you stop and look at it, you see a wise God. You see that the God who's an imaginative, creative, he's got colors, beautiful colors and, and shapes all at his disposal, the variety of every kind. You can go anywhere from a blueberry bush to a redwood tree. But you've got the ability of our God in his design. We could go into the animal kingdom and do the same thing, can't we? We could talk about each one with their strengths and each one with their own protective devices and each one's with their, their vulnerable points. In wisdom, he's planned them. In wisdom, he designed them. Even down to like the tiger, he gave that fur. He painted stripes on it. He gave it four strong legs to run and eyes set in a certain fashion to spot things that slightly move. God designed it so. Consider how he supplies every detail to creation. Every single part appropriate to each animal. He's designed it so. It wouldn't do any good to put wings on a dog. I have enough trouble keeping it in the yard. You wouldn't want him on your cows. God designed it so, didn't he? Everything in wisdom. He knew what he was doing. He didn't put wings on maple trees either. He had a plan. You see, we can illustrate this a thousand different ways, can't we? What is it saying? From Him are all things. Everything. He's the source. He's the beginning of, the, uh, of it all because He's wise and He's powerful. Because that's the way things are. They're from Him. Now, how does that fit into our Romans 11 passage? It's pretty simple if you think of it this way. As God's sovereignty in Israel. Israel is compared to the natural olive tree. Now, there's a lot of significance to that, I'm sure. We, we won't go there today, but notice what he does say, especially in this passage. Verse 16, he says this, The root is holy, and the branches are too. There were benefits from being a descendant of Abraham. Being holy meant you were set apart. Set apart by God for a purpose. God's selection of Abraham is, is referenced here as an act of his own choice. Abraham did not seek out God's favor. God initiated it. Abraham did not earn God's favor. God initiated it. God's plan for calling Abraham and telling him to go to a land that he'd never been before, the nation of Israel were the branches. He says the branches do not support the root. The root supports the branches. And all this is God's sovereign design. What is it saying? Abraham's descendants could not boast, could they? 
They had no cause to boast. God had initiated the call of Abraham that came down to the very thing that they were enjoying this day. They didn't produce Abraham. They did not produce God's plan. Verse 29 states that these were the gifts from God. The calling was God's. Verse 32, the mercy they received was God's. Verse number 33, the wisdom and the knowledge belong to God. The judgment and the ways belong to God. He is the source of their choosing, their calling, the source of their cultivating, the source of their growth, the source of their design, the source of their fruit bearing, the source of their branching out. So whatever power, whatever wisdom, whatever grace, whatever mercy, whatever love, whatever reproof, whatever reconciliation, whatever it is, guess where its source lies? In God. That's what he said. Israel, that's what they are. Their source is God. Now, verse 17, he introduced the wild olive, didn't he? The wild olive, that's what's grafted into the natural olive tree. Here, Paul, he's very careful to explain that the wild olive is the Gentile believers. How is it that they have benefited from the salvation of God? How did it happen that they were grafted into the olive tree? Was it the wisdom of the Gentiles? No. Was it in their plan, the plan of the Gentiles? No. Was it by their design? No. To all of those you would say no. Why? Because it was God's sovereign choice to graft them into the tree. That's what God chose to do. So verse 17 says that they were grafted in. They didn't graft themselves in. God did it. They, he provided for them the rich root of the olive tree. Stated that it all came from God's kindness in verse 22. Just as in his kindness he called them, the Jews, in his kindness he called the Gentiles also. Neither party can boast. Neither of them can because they're both recipients of His grace and mercy. And folks, your salvation is just like that too. Don't think for a minute you're going to pat yourself on the back for being saved. Boy, I did a good job, didn't I? Somehow I got God's attention, and He was so impressed with me that He had to pick me. Don't think that for a minute. Just be it known this way, that the fact that God has chosen, that God has called that the saving act belongs to him, the mercy belongs to him, the grace belongs to him. All of these show distinctly the sovereignty of our God as the initiator in our salvation. He's done all of it. He alone is the source. Mark that. That's important for us to know. All things are from him, and so all the credit, all the reputation, all the honor goes to him. Forever. That's the first place to start. All the things in the past, they're from him. Now let's consider the things in the middle, where he's working. He says, and through him are all things. Through him, that's supreme directing cause, Matthew Henry said. When we read uh, Romans chapter 8, one of the favorite verses we read there is, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Right? You, you have that, 
on a little card next to your spare tire in the trunk of the car, don't you? Just a reminder on moments like that. Uh, we, we, we like that verse because it gives us some sort of a, uh, an anchor in the moment of distress. But what's interesting about that phrase, God calls us all things to work together for good. That's not past tense, folks. God caused all things to That's present tense. That means right now he's at work. Right now he is causing. You see? The causing is going on in the present we, we, we think of uh, something simple. Think of a watch for a minute, and, and I know we've moved into the electronic age, and things look a little different than they used to. But older watches that you had to wind and such like that, you tear them apart, and you find gears, you find little wheels in there, you find springs, you find all these little parts. Now, you just can't take them all and randomly step them in the watch and close the lid, and it's going to run. They have to be in their place. They have to be in the right place, working in the right uh, manner. There's needs for things like friction and motion and things of all sorts for all these parts to move to keep it working as it should. Just a, a simple picture. But, you know, we try our best to try to explain what God is doing in our midst and how He's working. And there are some things that happen that we say, I don't know how to account for it. How, how, how do you understand that God's at work when, when things are not working like we think they should? And we get puzzled by it. We, we say, okay, um, he's sovereign in his choosing, yes. He's sovereign in his calling and his saving, yes. And we're supposed to believe him, right? Man is supposed to respond by faith, right? So, if man does not believe, did God mess up? That's the question Paul's trying to answer here. Does that mean that God's no longer at work? God has been thwarted somehow because man refused to believe? You know what's amazing? Is that God is not like us. He is not like us. He's not a responder to circumstances like we must be. We endure difficulties. We, we try to overcome challenges. We try to understand bad things. Did God know that the Jews would reject him? Yes. Verse. There's verses all over the place. Verse 17. Did he break off some of the branches because of unbelief? Yes. Did he graft in the Gentiles after breaking off the branches of Israel? Yes. Verse 22 is an interesting phrase. The kindness and severity of our God. We prefer the kindness. The severity of our God. See, He can make the tree, folks. He can cause it to grow. He can give it branches to bear. He can break off those branches that do not please Him. He can graft other branches into the trees. We can't be arrogant in all this. We cannot be conceited about this. Because, as he says in verse 21, if he could cut off their branches, he could cut off the Gentiles too. Are we troubled by his severity? Probably. I am, when I read of it. And I say, woo! That, that's kind of a, uh, a troubling passage. But what about his kindness? Is he only mostly kind and a little severe? What about his kindness and their unbelief? 
What about his kindness and the fact that he gave to us the privilege of belonging to him because they would not believe? What about his mercy? What about his forgiveness? What about the fact that he says, through the rejection, he's brought reconciliation? Before we start to think that God has abandoned his people who would not believe, he goes on to say, God has not rejected his people. Verse 1. Verse 2. God has not rejected his people. Verse number 13. God is able to graft them in again. See, he keeps emphasizing this. He says it again in verse 24. How much more will those natural branches be grafted back into the olive tree? Verse number 25 through 27, he says, it's a mystery I know, but in verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Do you believe we have a God like this? Absolutely so. I can't explain unbelief very well. Rejection, disobedience. I could maybe understand belief a little better, or acceptance or obedience, but they're all in the working of our God. And it goes a little beyond us sometimes to, to understand, but this is all Paul said. We know that God calls us all things to work together for good. It's what we know. It's not how we understand it. Paul doesn't say we understand how God did it. He just says, we know that this is what God does. So that's where he can rest in it. He didn't understand the beatings. He didn't understand the shipwrecks. He didn't understand the imprisonments. I can imagine some nights are tough. But he did know that God was at work. After all, everything is through him, folks. Everything is through him for his glory. He's directing it. Let's not forget that. We need that today, where we live today. It's a present tense concept, okay? God is at work. Even when we don't understand it, just stop and say, Lord, I know though. I don't understand, but I know. You cause all things to work together for good. And that's something we must come to a conclusion. You see, in the end, all things are to him as well. To him. Just think for a minute, and I really won't keep you but for another minute or so. The ultimate final cause. The ultimate final step. The last thing that comes along. God who has initiated it in the first place in designing and planning for his own glory. God who is at work in the present right now, weaving all the parts, the good and the bad, for his glory. The picture is not complete until it's all finished for his glory. And he's doing that. Ephesians 1.10 says, all things will be summed up in Christ Jesus. It says in Ephesians 1.12 that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 He who began the good work in you will complete it. Every single verse I could pull up and I've got a page of them, okay? In case you don't believe me. God will finish what He has started. And it will be to His glory. The end result will be glorious. He will get the credit he would get the honor. He would get all of these things. Now, just something that's on our horizon. We talk about the tribulation period. Terrible things. Matter of fact, the world has never seen days like what's coming. If you want a real refreshing picture of the tribulation period, you say, can there be one? Oh, yeah. Go to Revelation sometime, maybe this afternoon. Pull up chapter 7. 
Start reading in verse 9 through 17. And read the testimony of those who went through it. What are they doing in that scene? They're giving all the glory to God. They're waving their branches before Him. They're praising His name. They just went through the worst period this world has ever known. And they're giving Him glory. We don't have time to go through that, so that's your homework. Think of this, though. We speak of God getting the glory. That's what the verse said. From Him, He's the source. Through Him, He's directing. To Him, there's a final result. In all things, to Him be the glory. How long? Forever. Forever. The glory forever. The glory forever. Heavenly Father, as a congregation, as even as individuals that you have set your gaze upon, that you have loved us with a love before this world was even created, you planned, you set in motion that your own Son would come and dwell among us, that your own Son would die on a cross to take our sins, your own Son would be buried and rise again, that we might come to know Him as our Lord and Savior, that we might believe in Him, that we might today come to worship Him, to stand in Christ as we bear His righteousness and not our own, to know that we have a place before God, we have a home in heaven forever, we have all these gifts from you, and we say to you, there must be the glory forever and ever and ever. We want to be part of that great chorus that has started from the beginning, that just has stated how glorious you are. Everything that we have is from you. Everything that we are is from you. Everything that we will be when we stand in your presence and bear the image of your Son, our Savior, will be from you. For that we bow our knees today. We humbly declare with our hearts that you are God, the sovereign God, deserving of all our praise. Thank you for what you're doing. Even now in our midst, we ought to be the most thankful people on this earth. We praise you, Lord, for it. In Jesus' name. Amen.